This past week, I was in New York City teaching Salvation Army officers and pastors. And one of my colleagues in that setting is a lady named uh, Dr. Julie Johnson, okay? Dr. Julie, you can barely see her here sticking her face out of, out of this table. And so Dr. Johnson, uh, we actually had to say goodbye to her in a sense this summer because she transitioned out of the Salvation Army and she joined Rutgers University. So last month, in the month of December, she found herself in New Orleans at the Ritz-Carlton. And she's there in New Orleans working for Rutgers. And she goes to the lobby to get her big cup of coffee. And she's drinking coffee. And a man about her age comes into the lobby and starts talking to her. And of course, he's fascinated because she's at Rutgers and she's in higher education and and they start talking about all the problems with higher education in America. And, and there's the dip in students. And what are we going to do? And should we change how we educate college students? And, and as it turns out, he's from France. And so now they're talking about the differences between American universities and French universities. And back and forth it goes. And for more than 30 minutes, she's engaged in this passionate conversation about higher education with this guy at the Ritz-Carlton. And she asks him, what do you do? And he says, well, I work in government. And she says, oh, well, what do you do in government? And he says, I'm the president. And as it turns out, as it turns out, she was talking to Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, for 30 minutes, completely unaware. And in that moment, everything was revealed, and she could look around the room, and now she could see the Secret Service agents that were standing with smiles on their faces because this woman had no idea who she was talking to. What was hidden was suddenly revealed to her. And she would tell you it changed everything. <laughs> and she began to talk to him very differently. Now, you've experienced moments like that. If you've ever had a friend who was dating someone, and she really likes him, and he really likes her, and she's met his parents, and he's met her parents, and you know any day now he's going to propose. And so in she comes at this gathering that you're having, and she's got her coat on, and she has her hands in her pocket, and you're thinking, did he, didn't he? I don't know. But once the hand comes out, and you can see the bling, right, everything changes, doesn't it? She was engaged when she walked in the room, but... That was hidden, and once it's revealed, it changes everything. Over the next several weeks, I'm going to be teaching from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this idea that something hidden has now been revealed is at the core of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it's found in Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, as I briefly wrote earlier... God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. God revealed. So as I briefly wrote earlier is all the stuff in chapters one and two. And Paul's saying that has been revealed. And, and what has been revealed? Why this plan that both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children, both 
are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. Now, Paul uses an interesting word for reveal. And that word is an aorist participle version in the Greek Bible, apekalupthe. You have to apekalupthe. That's the aorist participle of apocalypto. And apocalypto means to reveal, to disclose, to bring to light. You may recognize it by its English transliterated version, apocalypse. So Paul says to the Ephesians, I have been apocalypsed. Something hidden has been revealed. Now, because you're Americans, you hear the word apocalypse, and what do you think? Oh, no, we're all going to die. It's the end of the world as we know it. That's what you think. But that's not what, <laughs> that's not what Paul means by this word, okay? Paul knows exactly what it is to be apocalypsed. We see that in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, meanwhile, Saul, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and e was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As Tom Wright describes this Saul, Saul was a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-orthodox, Pharisaic Jew, exactly the kind of person you would suspect that God would choose to reach the Gentiles. <laughs> and Paul, still fresh, Paul is Saul, by the way, same guy, Paul, it's still fresh, the Jesus' death and resurrection had just happened two or three years earlier. And Saul, Paul, is hoping that people in Damascus who are following this errant rabbi will be taken care of much the way Stephen was. Well, it continues, at verse 3. As, as Saul was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Jesus, the one who in Saul's mind had led God's people astray through his magic tricks and his teaching, the one who is definitely not the Messiah, that Jesus is appearing to him in this light. And so what happens? The men with Saul stood speechless. They heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, this was a public event of some kind. The bystanders knew something had happened, but they didn't know everything. And Saul is now struck blind. He's taken to Damascus where he fasts and he waits for three days. Paul talks about this encounter, this apocalypse, two more times in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 22, Paul says, As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And then later on in Acts chapter 26, he tells us this, I will rescue you, this is God speaking, from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you, Saul, to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. When Paul set out for Damascus, the fact that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords was hidden from him. He didn't know it. He didn't see it. But he had an apocalypse, an apocalypto. And what was hidden became revealed. And he saw Jesus for who Jesus really is. It's not a coincidence that so many of these verses involve sight and seeing. Now, Ephesians has several different themes in it that we're going to touch on in the next several weeks. Salvation, the nature of family, reconciliation, identity, belonging, powers, and yes, holiness. And it's brilliantly divided into two parts. And the way I would describe the two parts is chapters one through three is Paul basically saying, I'm going to blow your mind. And chapters four through six are, what do we do now? Another way to put that is the first three chapters are understanding the mystery. And the last three chapters are living out this mystery. Okay. Now, I've heard more than a few people over the years say something like, I really like Jesus, but I just don't like Paul because Jesus is all about freedom and Paul seems to be about religion and rules and he seems like a woman hater. And so I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure I like this Paul guy. And so one of the things I'm going to do for you over the next several weeks is kind of make a case for you to see that what Paul teaches is actually Jesus 101. Everything that Paul writes about is really just Jesus teaching. And so I want to connect the dots for you in that. And now some of you, because you grew up Presbyterian or Baptist or Catholic, you're going to get really wigged out about how Paul talks about principalities and powers. It's going to be freak out. Dun, 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 dun. Now, those of you from Pentecostal backgrounds, you're going to get excited, okay? But here's the deal, oh, Presbyterians, Baptist Catholics. I know that it seems like humans are running the world, but they're not. They're not. There are unseen spiritual beings, both good and bad, at work in the world. Now, the good news for you and me is that Jesus sits enthroned above them all, good and bad. But not every voice in your head is your voice. Not everything that goes on in the world is simply the result, direct result of human hands, okay? And so we're going to get into that. So today, I just want to be in the first two verses of Ephesians, the first two verses, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. There's just three things I want to draw out from these uh, two verses. Oh, that makes me a normal preacher. <laughs> okay? And the first is... Paul. You got to know a few things about Paul if you're not familiar with him. Paul and Saul are the same guy, 
And he goes by both names after his encounter. So we have Paul being referred to as Saul well after his conversion. It's not like it's a change of identity for him and the names reflect that. So no, same guy. Paul was smart, brilliant in fact, absolutely brilliant. The rhetoric that he employs, it's not the way we Americans employ rhetoric, but he's well educated. He's smart and he's a Roman citizen. He's a Pharisee. And Paul knew much of the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, by memory. In fact, he knew big chunks of the Old Testament by memory. Because in the ancient world, Scripture was everywhere all the time. His mother would have sang to him the Psalms at night, every night. For the people, the Jewish people in the first century, Scriptures were to them what screens are to us. Scripture was to them what screens are to us. Allow me to demonstrate. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You know the rest of it. It is habited, repeated things that happen over and over again, unless your name is Ivan. And you have heard this and seen this movie so many times that it's in you, okay? It's in you. The second part I wanna draw out from this is this, I am writing to God's holy people. Now in some translations, you'll read, I'm writing to God's saints, and that's unfortunate. Uh, the word there is tois agios, hagios, holy ones. And in the Old Testament, holy ones refers to two groups of people. One are the Israelites, God's people. And the other are spiritual beings. Again, we're going to come back to this. Spiritual beings. So in Leviticus 11.44, God says this, For I am the Lord your God. You must not consecrate yourself. You must consecrate yourselves, rather, and be holy, because I am holy. Do not defile yourselves with any of these small animals that scurry along the ground. And then in Psalm 89, verse 5, all heaven will praise your great wonders, Lord. Myriad, myriads of angels, that's the New Living Translation, but literally it means myriads of holy ones will praise you for your faithfulness, okay? Have you ever wondered why there's all these rules in Leviticus about ritual purity? Don't touch this stuff. Don't touch a dead body. It makes you unclean. Don't eat the crawly things along the ground. It makes you unclean. You ever wondered, like, mold, you're unclean. Have you wondered, bodily fluids, you're unclean. Have you ever wondered why that's the case? You have to be holy to be in God's presence because God is holy. And part of holiness is clean, undefiled, perfect, without blemish. Now, Jesus, Jesus radically changed our understanding of how that works. And we see it again in Acts only this time, Paul is demonstrating what Jesus himself taught. So in Acts chapter 21, something has happened. There are rumors going around. Did you hear? Saul isn't really a Jew anymore. He's not behaving like a Jew. He's not following the rules. He's not following the laws. He's not one of us anymore. And so it, it's causing commotion. And among the early followers of the way, they're like, what do we do about this? There's this rumor going around. And so James says to Paul, Saul, hey, 
there's some other guys who have already taken a vow of purity. Why don't you take this vow too? And when you take a vow of purity, you go to the temple, they shave your head. So in other words, they want Paul walking around Jerusalem with a shaved head. Everyone who sees him will go, oh, the stuff I've been hearing isn't true. Look, he's shaved his head. He's taken a vow of purity. Acts 21, here's what we want you to do. We have four men who've completed their vow. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, paying for them to have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that the rumors are false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws, okay? But what happens instead is that they see Paul walking around with Trophimus, a Gentile, and they say to themselves, Paul is mocking us and he's mocking our laws and they're outraged. There's actually a riot that takes place a few verses later. Paul made an error in his thinking because Paul assumed that they would assume that he took his faith seriously. Paul was dem trying to demonstrate to them by walking along with Trophimus that God has made Trophimus clean. What they saw instead is that Paul was mocking them, okay? You know this, this is how it works with Jesus. Jesus comes up to a leper, and the way the Jews thought it worked was, Jesus touches the leper, the leper now makes Jesus unclean and unfit to be in God's presence. But what happens when Jesus touches the leper? Who changes? The leper. Jesus' cleanness now goes to the leper and the leper is healed and is now clean and able to be in God's presence. So this purity stuff is about an ability to be in God's presence. Unless you think that the Jews are just wackadoodle, I wanna to talk to you Americans about your ritual purity stuff. I've brought along with me a flag of the United States of America. As you can see, it is properly folded. Can you fold an American flag any way you want? Is this flag allowed to touch the ground? So you're telling me for this piece of fabric that among Americans who by and large don't believe in like demons, angels, and creative beings, you know, <laughs> cosmic beings and stuff like that, that they have rituals and a sacred object and special ways of handling that sacred object? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, that's exactly. So see how this works, okay? Every culture, by the way, has this kind of stuff about purity, cleanness, and uncleanness, okay? So now we're ready to go back to the last part of verses 1 and 2. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I have to remind you of this again because you're Americans. Because you're an American, every time you see the word you, do you know what you think? Me! <laughs> but... That's because we only have one English word for you. Oh, silly us. So many other languages have two or more words for you, okay? And so in the Greek, there's actually two words for you. You singular, and as we would say in the South, all y'all. So one of the things that, one of the biggest things that you could do for your faith as an American is to change the way you read the Bible because almost every time the word you is used in the Bible, do you know what it is? All y'all, all y'all. 
So may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give all y'all grace and peace, okay? So now I want to return to Dr. Julie Johnson in the Ritz-Carlton in New Orleans last month. She was completely unaware that Emmanuel Macron was visiting New Orleans. She was completely unaware that the man was staying in the same hotel, the Ritz-Carlton. And for 30 minutes, she was completely unaware that she was talking to the president of France. Gang, Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is how God is rescuing all of humanity from sin and death. That's the heart of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. God is rescuing both Jew and Gentile. And it's not something that they're doing. It's something God is doing, okay? And yet, there are many people who are completely unaware of this reality. <sighs> completely unaware. In fact, many of them would insist to you and me, look, silly generations people, don't you realize that Jesus is just an amazing teacher? Like Buddha, like Gandhi, like Fred Rogers, like Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, he's got some good stuff to say, but would you quit harping about the stuff that Jesus is God and Jesus is the only way? Don't you understand that the only way we can get along is if you get rid of this insistence, if you drop this, if you set this aside? And of course, we can't. Because the only Jesus we have is the Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So let me ask a couple of questions in light of this quick overview of the book of Ephesians and just the first two verses. And the first question is simply this. Have you encountered Jesus for who he really is for yourself? Have you encountered Jesus for who he really is? And secondly, does your life reflect the life of someone who is set apart, agios, for God? Does your life reflect the life of someone set apart for God? So I have a friend who grew up in a big family, lots of brothers and sisters. And his dad was a bivocational pastor. So he worked in a grocery store, and then he was a pastor on Sundays, Wednesday nights, and some other times during the week. So he was a very busy man. He was very, this, my friend's father was uber conservative, uber conservative, was very condemning to my friend. So anything my friend did, not good enough, not fast enough, not smart enough, not strong enough, just not enough. And if that wasn't, if that wasn't enough to kind of upset the apple cart, my friend's father was a huge hypocrite. So he was syrupy kind with all the church folks and he was just mean at home. So that creates some ingredients for some not good things, right? <laughs> you recognize that. That creates some ingredients for some not good things. So when he became a young adult, he walked away from his faith. That's the phrase he uses or used, okay? Max, he would say, when I moved out of the house, I walked away from my faith. 
if he were doing that today, he would probably talk about deconstructing his faith. But he's my age in his 50s, so <laughs> the language he has in his wheelhouse is, I walked away. And over the years, we had many, 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 many conversations, Janice, about Jesus. Many conversations. Who is Jesus? What did he really teach? What was he really like? Jesus, 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 Jesus. I had these conversations with him. And I remember it got to the point where I thought, you know what? He's just going to be one of those people who can never see that God is not some just some cosmic version of his earthly dad. He's just not going to be able to get over that hump. No matter how many conversations I have, it's just not going to happen. And then one Christmas, he surprised me. I get the phone call, and I can barely make out what he's saying because he's, and I'm, you know, he's sobbing. He's, you know, trying to catch his breath. And I'm like, were you in a car accident? Are you okay? Like, did somebody die? Like, that's what I'm thinking. Finally, when he can calm himself, this is what he says to me. Max, you're not going to believe it. Jesus accepts me where I am. And I'm like, what? He says, no, no, like, God's not like my dad. Like, God's just amazing. And he's, Max, I'm telling you, he's rescued me. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And I'm like, trying really hard not to do the... Were you not listening to me for the past 15 years? Like, what's your problem? But I didn't say those things. And I was like, well, tell me more. And out it comes. What was hidden to him previously had been revealed. He had an apocalypto, okay? And so I want to close out this introduction to Ephesians and let Paul speak for himself, okay? So Paul writes this. He says, as I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed this mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you'll understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. And both enjoy the promise of the blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I'm the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please, don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored.